Hey Church of the Beloved, thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Today's message is brought to us by Senior Pastor Clint Shamblin. He is preaching from Leviticus chapter 26 verses 11 through 12 and Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 17. Today we continue on through Leviticus series and our Levitical series has tried to expound on exactly the blueprint of the gospel foundations. Essentially this, the gospel has always been and always will be and forever has been assured the goal of Christ, the goal of the Trinity, the goal of God the Father to redeem his people. I want to show that through Leviticus, although it seems odd and funky and weird, there's different codes and different laws. And as a matter of fact, as, I, as the staff was studying this week, one of our staff members exclaimed, I'm very happy to get to this part of Leviticus because it's a promise of God's presence. There's no weird cricket eating laws or sacrificial laws. This is joyful. And, and as Paul says in Romans, the law could not do anything to us because it was corrupted by the flesh. Essentially this, it says, the law was instructed, the law was there, all of these, don't eat this, eat this, don't do this, do this, was to show us just how bad you and I are at obeying. That's the point of the law. The law was to show, you're, we are really bad at obeying things. How bad? Well, here's 1,219 ways that God gives us. And we go, oh, wow, yeah, that's a lot of ways. And there's many, many more. Today, I want to show you something that Leviticus and Romans, the, the whole entirety of the canon, the Old Testament and the New Testament, signifies, exemplifies, and encourages you and I with something dear. And here's what that is. That God's presence is promise, it's delivered, and it's the joy of his people. God's pre- presence is promised, it's delivered, and it's the joy of his people. Now, one of the things that I like to do as a pastor Uh, is I like to banter about theology. Now, notice I used a very, very specific word. I like to banter about theology. Um, If you want to argue or debate me, I will more than likely, you'll see the shutdown face happen on me, and I'll I'll walk away from you. Uh, I like bantering, because here's what bantering involves. Bantering involves a little bit of back and forth, a little bit of humility to understand that maybe I don't know everything, and, and, and the same likewise in somebody else, when you see it in somebody, you go, oh, well, We'll go to the depths of theology all day long. Now, I want to encourage you with something. I want to introduce you to maybe a banter that you hadn't seen before in the presence of God. When I say God's presence is promise delivered and the joy of his people, I just made a radical, radical, radical claim about God. As a matter of fact, I just made a radical claim about God that no other religion in the world, in the history of the world, has ever made. One of the things I like bantering is comparative religion. Get on your undergraduate degree hat one more time. Go back to that time. Maybe it's philosophy 101. Maybe it's, uh, you know, Western Civ. Maybe it's comparative religion. I really enjoy that conversation because it allows the gospel to speak for itself. Now, I don't like comparative religion how we typically do it. We do this. There's There's a rubric. There's an Excel sheet. It says, what does this religion believe about a holy book? Yes, there is one. No, there's not. Yes, there is. No, there's not. What is it about God? God's infinite. She is everywhere. They are everywhere. So on and so forth. And, and it's kind of stoic, and it's kind of, it kind of traps you into a little bubble. And that's where debates happen. So we get on the stage, and we debate 
a Muslim scholar and a Christian scholar, a, a Mormon scholar and a, and a Buddhist scholar get on stage and we debate the tenets of these Excel spreadsheets. And, and I don't know about you, I've never seen anybody come to faith on any of those discussions. And if you have, please share it with me. I, I've seen a lot of people get further from grace and gospel in those times. That's why I like banter. And one of the things that I enjoy about banter with this statement that I just made is that the Christian faith is the only faith, if we let the gospel speak for itself, it says something radical. Every other religion in the world, every other religion makes a claim about God that he, she, they are completely other than and have no ability to connect with you and I because we are so low. Let me, let me go down the road. Uh, Buddhists would say, uh, my, my Buddhist neighbors would say, um, well, you, you know, you, you have the physical, which is bad. Oh, the physical is so bad. We, just, we need to ascend to the spiritual. The spiritual is great. Physical, bad, spiritual, good. Rise up above and, and remove the chains, the oppression of the physical. Meaning God, the incarnate deity that we all are, is so much different than the world that you and I exhibit right now. We can't even touch it. Muslim neighbors would say this. They would say, yes, there, there's a God. Uh, Allah is high and holy, but Allah is so high and holy, no human can ever contact with Allah. There, the, Allah would never come down and sully himself in the form of you and I. That would be beneath him. And I just made a statement about God's presence that it's promised, delivered, and the joy of his people in that God became flesh and dwelt among us. No other religion in the world ever makes this claim that God, high and mighty, exalted and forever, would take on the fleshly form of mankind and dwell among us. This is a radical piece of doctrine. So much so that I want to spend time discussing what God's presence means for you and I. Because I think if you understand God's presence, if you get this, if you come to understand God's presence as something that is promised, delivered, and the joy of his people... I hope and I pray it will give you assurance and confidence. That's my prayer today. To do so, to tell you how this presence is promised, delivered, and the joy of his people, I want to talk about what this presence is, how do we know his presence, and when does his presence happen? What is the presence of God? How, how do we know when this presence, what, how do we know it's, it's here, and when does this presence happen? I want to start with what is this presence? Uh, in her book, The Power of Meaning, uh, Emily Smith made this claim. She said that, that a life worth living, a life well living, has four basic pillars. Uh, it has these pillars, belonging, purpose, storytelling, and transcendence. Essentially, in this book, uh, what is it, how do you know you have a full present life? How do you know you have a joyful life? She says, belonging, purpose, storytelling, and transcendence. Here's what she means. Let me, let me kind of distill it down for you. What I mean that is belonging. Uh, do we have people that we love and love us? That's a pretty big key thing to having a joyful life, I would imagine. Are those people we love and love us, do we have purpose in our living? Is what I'm doing worthwhile? That's a, that's a very, very pertinent question to a lot of us. Is my job helping society or is it just helping me? Is it even helping me? <laughs> or do I need to change careers? <laughs> Storytelling. Is the, is the life that I'm living redemptive in so much that evil is being defeated and good is triumphing? 
And then lastly, transcendence. Is this good beyond me? Is it not just good for my life? Do I, do I help somebody in a moment? Sure. But is, it, is there a meta-narrative? Is there a bigger narrative? Do I transcend time and space? Do I have a legacy? Now, these four pillars are good pillars. Some may even say they're very good pillars. But my encouragement to you is that they're not great pillars. Why? Because each one of these can crumble. Each one of these can be taken away. This little thought experiment, go with me. Uh, let's say that I invested in Apple be before the stock split like a thousand and two times, okay? And I just have the most money on the planet. And I was really, really nefarious. And I wanted to make your life an abject, unreal, evil place. Okay, so I call it the nefarious agent thought experiment. So I have all the money, I have all the time, and my sole job, since I don't have to work, I don't have a family, is just to make your life wretched. And I come to you and I say, okay, hey, uh, these pillars. One, do I have people that love me and I love them? Well, if I was really, really, really wicked and I had all the money in the world, I, I could take away loved ones, couldn't I? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, life does that, but I could take away loved ones from you. We see it happen all the time. Death is real. Illness is real. And if I base a pillar based upon a relationship with somebody, they can be gone tomorrow, couldn't they? Many of you have struggled with grief of that, haven't you? Now, if your life was dedicated upon the presence of an individual here on earth, that can go like smoke, can't it? Okay, all right, so pillar one, crumbled. Pillar two, purpose. Well, my job, I have a job. It's really good for society. It helps society out. Um, AI is coming for y'all. <laughs> I don't know what job you have, but AI is coming for you. <laughs> we could say at one point, no, 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 my job helps people and is good for society until it's not, right? We have, we have bricklayers unions that are wondering about where are all the bricks to make things, and we see a 3D robot pouring cement in, the, in, in a house, and we go, well, there, there goes my purpose in life. I'm no longer a bricklayer. Now what do you do? Pillar two, crumbled. Storytelling. My, I, there's good and evil happening in the world, and my life brings purpose and transcendence, and it's, it's got a meta-narrative, and that good triumphs. Well, what happens when you come across something? I don't know if you've interacted much with life. Um, the number of times evil wins in life is astonishing to me. It's like if you watch the, uh, the movie No Country for Old Men, uh, you can tell a lot about somebody based upon how they like No Country for Old Men. I happen to love the movie. And now you know a little bit more about me, <laughs> that I'm kind of dark and twisty a little bit. Yes, yes, I am. Because at the end of No Country for Old Men, what happens is there's no pink ribbon that gets tied on the story. As a matter of fact, the nefarious evil person, they walk off into the sunset. And every other person in the movie suffers. Good does not triumph evil. As a matter of fact, evil wins. Now, if we were... If we had audacity, wouldn't we admit that that happens a lot more in life than we're willing to say? That the white hats and black hats, if you, if you watch any sort of old school TV, how they used to connotate evil and good is the, the people in the white hats were good, the people in the black hats were bad. That's how we know good wins, the white hats win, the black hats get thrown away. It's not like that, is it? In our world, things are happening all around us where it's confusing. It's complex. All right, pillar three, gone. Transcendence. I, I elevate above my station in life. Now, this is a little bit more nuanced. 
Maybe you're somebody that says, well, I, I transcend by going to nature. I transcend by having meditation. I transcend, I, I get above and outside of my own station in life by doing, and you, you put an experience in there, going on retreat. By the way, we call this having me time. That's what we call this, right? Well, what happens when that me time doesn't hit like it used to? What happens when you have me time and you go to the same cabin, you go to the same retreat, you, you try to reinvent the experience. And as you and I know, if, if, if you're in any sort of understanding of how our synapses work in our brain and how our, our chemicals react with our physical, every time you have an experience and it does something, you know what, you know what needs to happen the next experience you have? It needs to be better. It needs to go bigger. And we say, okay, well, transcendence based upon anything that I can do has diminished returns. So when the Old Testament says this, it, it's, it's wild what the Old Testament says. The Old Testament says God's presence gives you transcendence, purpose, presence. It gives you all the pillars that we're seeking for in relational aspects with purpose of my job. I may be a bricklayer, but I'm a child of God first, and that gives me better purpose than being a bricklayer. I may love my neighbors and my friends and my families and my spouse and my kids and my mother and my father, but God loves me. I'm his child first. That means I can love these people, and that can never be taken from me. See, in, in the Old Testament, Leviticus says of God, he makes this bold claim, this wild claim, this claim that no other religion makes. I will be your God, and you will be my people. It's radical. So radical that if you go back into uh, the canon, into the Bible, you go to Genesis 1 through 3, the chapters 1 through 3. Uh, and I'll make this statement. If you can understand Genesis chapters 1 through 3, you can understand a majority of the Bible. As a matter of fact, you can pretty much understand the whole Bible. It's a primer for us to understand. And if you want to know more about what I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going to touch on it very briefly. We're going to have Sunday school starting soon. And we have leaders that are going to go through Genesis chapters 1 through 3. I encourage you, go to it. Learn about these chapters because they're formative for you and I. In this understanding of creation and how God did it, he makes this statement. It's very, very wild. He says, I walk with them in the cool of the day. Now, again, uh, my wife and I have a conversation sometimes. And we, it's another thought experiment. We say, if, God's if God was in the room right now, what would you be doing? If God was in the room right now, what would you be doing? And many of us would be like, I, I grew up in a very weird time as a young adult. I apologize for this. We had a whole bunch of t-shirts running around with Jesus, with gang paraphernalia, and it said, Jesus is my homeboy on it. It was really embarrassing looking back on it now. But we have this understanding of like, oh, no, no, Jesus and I are so in sync together. We, I would just go up and I would say, what's going on, man? How you doing? And my wife says, no, I'd be hiding under the bed. This is the almighty cosmic father who is now in presence with us. And I go, oh yeah, you're, you're probably right. See, in Genesis when it says, I walk with my people in the cool of the day. God's presence has been with his people so much so that we just walked together. Adam and Eve were able to take a stroll like it was a mid-afternoon coffee break. The cosmic deity who created a black hole 8 billion light years away that you and I have no understanding about right now. That guy walked like it was a time in the park. Now see, what's so crazy about this is that 
when God said, I will be your God and you will be my people, it's a promise that he made in the creative order in which he walked around and Adam and Eve blew up. Adam and Eve said, I don't want your presence. I want my own presence. Adam and Eve said, thanks God for your presence. Keep it, shove it. I don't want it. I want wisdom. I want knowledge. I want to know all things. I don't want you. That's the definition of sin. The definition of sin is, I don't want God, I want more of me. God, thanks, but no thanks. The sin. And God has always wanted to say, but you're my people, I want to be with you. You're my people, I want to be with you. Take my presence. My presence is the key. My presence is the gift. Starting Genesis, we said no thanks. And we've been saying no thanks ever since. So when God makes this promise, when he says, you will be my people, I will be your God, what he's hearkening back to is, you and I will walk like it's a Sunday afternoon stroll in the cool summer breeze. That should be radical to you. I think a lot of times in the church, we neuter a lot of theology. Don't neuter this theology. Don't diminish this theological point that the God of all the cosmic deities is with you, living in you, with us. That's profound. That's insane. It's, somebody mocked me earlier, which that's bananas. It is. It's abject craziness, and yet he says it to you and I. Now, he hearkens back a lot of times in Leviticus, time and time and time and time again. He says, I will be your God, you will be my people. I will be your God, you will be my people. And then he gives this as the promised understanding. He says, because remember, I brought you out of Egypt. Now, why is this important? Why is this key? Is this God kind of beating his chest a little bit and saying, oh, I'm so great, aren't I? I? I took you out of Egypt. Look at me. Praise me for it. No, it's not. When he says, remember, I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt, he's trying to remind them. He's trying to bring their memory back to the time when God's presence was with his people, and it's always been with his people, and it's always been his plan. What do I mean? When he brought people out of Egypt, do you know his presence? Before he was incarnate in Christ, before the word became flesh, he, he was with us. Go back and, and read the Ten Commandments. The commandments came down from on high, and there was this fog, there was this mist, there was a smoke that filled Mount Sinai, and it was the presence of God. When they were removing themselves out of Egypt, when God brought them out of Egypt, he manifested as a pillar of fire that danced back and forth in the night like this cosmic watchdog, keeping his people safe from the Egyptians, coming back and taking them back into slavery. His presence manifests in a pillar of fire. There's a bush that's burning, and it doesn't have a, a source of flame. It's ignited from within itself, and it's consuming nothing. It just keeps on going. The bush is not harmed by this fire, this presence of God. See, when God says, you will be my people, and I will be your God, what he is saying is, we get to walk in the cool of the day, and that is radical. That is insane. That presence should assure you. Uh, in his book, uh, Nicholas Waldorf, uh, Waldersdorf uh, had a son die. He was in a rock climbing accident. He was in Europe. He fell to his death. Now, Nicholas had five children. And 
to talk about the presence, to talk about what presence means with you and I. Let's understand the grief of this father. He writes this book, Lament for a Son, and in it, people will come to him once they find out that he had a son that died, and they'll, or, or even before they find out, they'll ask a question as innocent and simple as, how many children do you have? And Nicholas has to pause, and he says, do I tell them I have five, four living and one dead? Or do I just tell them I have four with me? Or do I just say four? And people, once they find out, they have no clue what to do. Have you been in a situation where somebody is grieving and you have no clue what to do? I'm going to give you two encouragements based upon presence and the power of presence. Nicholas says, he encourages us. He says, if you face somebody with grief, put your hand on their shoulder and say, I grieve with you. And then stop talking. See, I have a very, 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 very incredibly theologically rich thing as I do as a pastor. When somebody is grieving, I sit with them. And people will ask me questions all the time. What does this mean? How is God able to be present in this world with all this evil, with all this suffering? Why did God allow this? And do you know what my answer is every single time? I put my arm around them. And I say, that's a good question. Do you often look at God and do you want an answer for him? Or would you rather just be hugged by him? Do you demand of God, answer me, speak to me, tell me what I want to hear? Or would you rather just somebody come up and say, I know you're hurting. Come here. Let me give you a hug. Let me tell you right now, the most theologically sound thing you could do to somebody who is absence of a presence of a loved one is to embrace them. And that's exactly what God did for you and I. He says, you are absent in my presence. You rejected my presence. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you the biggest cosmic hug in the entire world. I'm going to send my son to you. Flesh incarnate. God's presence is promised to us. I will be your God and you will be my people. How? How will you be my people? By walking with me. By me being with you. That's how. Second point, how do we know of this presence? Now, the easiest way to talk about the presence of God is to talk about the incarnation, Christ becoming flesh. Now, I'm going to do two things really quick. One, come Advent season, we're going to talk a great deal about this because Advent is literally Christ with us. That's the joy. That's, that is what we exclaim. Easter, we exclaim he is risen. Christmas, we exclaim he is here. We're going to talk about that. Secondly, we're going to talk through the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and we're going to go through the light, the word before all beginning is with you and I. So let me tell you, yes, God's presence is the easiest way to see that, Christ incarnate. Let me give you a second thing before we jump to that. The practical advice, the second thing is this, the presence of God is known by your ability to transform. What do I mean by that? You can see God's presence in your life if you are becoming less like you and more like him. That's how you know God's presence is with you. Not how you feel at a retreat, not how you feel when a speaker says something, not how you feel after a Bible study. All of those might happen. The presence of God may be there. That's fine. I've been, uh, I, I did student ministries for a while before going on associate and senior pastoring. And every time in student ministries, uh, I, I, I hate saying this so crassly, but student ministries, to get people to make a decision in high school is actually a fairly easy thing. 
Maybe that was your experience. And maybe you're coming back on this now and you're like, hold on, I got to think through that a little bit. Amen. Because we would have these incredible experiences, these incredible events that took place, and we'd ask people to make decisions, and they would make decisions, and then years and years later, we'd ask, are you walking with God, are you transformed, are you stopping in the sin in your life, are you becoming more like Christ? And they said, I don't even go to church anymore. <laughs> I don't even believe in God. See, we know that God's presence is real by this fact. His people reflect his image. How do you know God's presence is real? Because this is what his people do. It says in Romans, it says, do not walk by the earthly flesh, but those who walk in the spirit, those who set their minds on the heavenly things, not, not on the earthly things. Uh, there's this old, uh, very old kind of churchy language that says, uh, he's too heavenly good to be, or he's, he's too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Meaning, and I, I, you know, oh, pastor, I get told this all the time when I talk to people, oh, pastor, you're, you're talking too idealistic. You're talking, the presence of God is seen when I don't sin anymore. I will never not sin. I, okay, I hear you. I really do. And you're like, oh, you're just thinking of the ideal way too much. Actually, what the Bible says is this. If you're too focused on the earth, on the practical, you're no heavenly good. If you get heaven, you get earth thrown in with it. If you get earth, you're not guaranteed heaven. How do you know the presence of God is real based upon what Romans says? How do we know we're walking with God in the cool of the day? We become like him. We're more gracious. We're more patient. We're more forgiving. We want to hear from people more than we want them to hear from us. Do you know what, do you know what the world does a great deal of? Uh, we're approaching November. Um, and let me just state for the record right here and right now, uh, I will, you will never know how I vote ever in my life. <laughs> That's my promise to you. <laughs> promise that back to me, please, okay? Because here's, here's what we understand about politicians across every single aisle. Do you know what would happen if there was a town hall meeting in which a politician just listened all day long? Would they get any votes? They wouldn't. Do you know what we do with leaders in today's day and age? They have to have a platform. They have to speak. They have to talk. And the more they talk, the more we listen, the more we like. And we go, oh, yes, that's, that's it. That's where I want to go. That's who I want my vote to be behind. Do you know what Jesus did a lot of the time? Listened. He asked questions, and then he stood and observed. He asked questions of the rich young ruler. You want to come follow me? No? Okay. Jesus sat with the woman at the well asking questions of her. He made statements along the way, yes, but Jesus was this incredible ability to listen to people. My question to you is this. Are you a better talker or a better listener? Do you want to hear from people or do you want to tell people about yourself? Because Jesus, while he made statements, while he proclaimed the gospel, how he did so was becoming more humble, less arrogant, more receiving from others to really understand how they're doing. Are you making more of the image of Christ? The presence of God is in your life because you no longer do the earthly things and you only do the spiritual. Now again, that sounds, pastor, again, pastor. Okay, I'm not, I'm not feeling very spiritual when my child is up at 2 a.m. screaming at me. I may say a few choice words. I'm not very spiritual when my roommate is throwing a party again at all hours of the night. 
I'm not very spiritual when my neighbor's dog is barking incessantly at 4 a.m. and I have to go find the dog and then kindly ask the neighbor to put it away. But here's the point. How do you know the presence of God is real in your life? You're able to transform. Not that you're perfect, not that you do all the time, but you're able, you receive challenge and you're able to receive the challenge from God and it encourages you because you know I get to do these things. I can become something different. That is the presence of God. Now, uh, bear with me. I'm going to give an example. And if you're a med student, please hear this. I am not. So I'm going to give you an example. And I encourage you, don't poke holes in my example. Please. Um, Don't. Okay, here we go. If a child comes in, to the doctor's office, and they're not hitting metrics of height and weight. If they're not on a scale that is encouraging growth all along their life, if they're not gaining weight, if they're not gaining height, the doctor will look at them and say, well, we need to investigate your diet. Are you eating correctly? Are you getting the proper nutrients into your life? What are you eating? That's what the doctor always asks us. What are your kids eating? I say, uh, they survive on pirate's booty and bagels and cream cheese. This is how they survive. And they go, okay, we need to change their diet. I'm like, I know. (laughs) Help me. If they're not growing, they'll ask about diet. If the diet is healthy, if they're getting the proper nutrients, then they're going to go, well, maybe maybe they're not growing because there's some sort of illness. And they start diagnosing some illnesses. They start drawing some blood or taking some tests or doing some x-rays, CAT scans. And they go, okay, is there illness in them? No, there's not? Okay. Maybe we need to find out. Maybe, maybe the child, if they have a proper diet and there's no illness, maybe something nefarious is happening. Maybe somebody's poisoning them. Maybe they're, they're not getting enough sleep because somebody is bullying them and keeping them up. And if they're getting all of those things, if a child is getting the proper nutrients, the proper diet, if they're getting the proper sleep, if they're not being poisoned, if nothing nefarious is happening, and they're not growing, you must ask, well, maybe their DNA has something to do with this. Maybe they need a heart transplant because the internal organs aren't properly functioning. If you have proper diet of God's word, if you have proper relationship of his people, if you have no one being nefarious against you and you're not growing, you're not deepening your relationship, you're not able to submit to God's word and forgive people and seek forgiveness, if those things aren't happening, my encouragement to you is this. Maybe you need a heart transplant because you don't have the proper heart. Maybe you grew up in church for a long, long time and you keep on saying... Pastor, I can't change. Pastor, I'm trying so hard. Pastor, I'm not deepening with Christ. And I would say this, are you sure you want to? Or do you think you have to based upon your experience? How do you know the presence of God is real in your life? You transform. And if you're not transforming, it works the other way. Maybe you don't have the presence of God. He's more powerful to change than anything we can do. And then lastly, when do we receive this presence? The presence of God settles into the depths of your heart when nothing but Christ is left. Again, very lofty, very meta, Pastor. Very, very high. When when nothing but the presence of Christ is left. What does that even mean? Let me let me give you a few very practical examples. I'm gonna give you some 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 analogies, I'm gonna give you some practice. Here's the practice. When you stop worrying about your life and start concentrating on his name being glorified about everything else, 
That's how you know when it hits. Is it at baptism? Nope. Can it be? Yes. That's very true. Can it be when you become a member of a church? Possibly. But it's when the gospel saturates itself so deep down, so in the marrow of your bones, that you can't think of anything else other than Christ's name exalted. And you might struggle with that, and you might wrestle with that. But you want his ways above your ways when you don't care that you're becoming less and he's becoming more? That's when you know. You know when somebody offends you and you're not offended. You go, that should have offended me. That should have really dug at me. Why didn't it offend me? Oh, probably because Christ was exalted. Probably because if I'm offended, okay, I'm fine with that. I can move on. I got the cosmic deity of all creation telling me that I'm beloved by him. What can you do to me? It's like that, look, TLC had something right, okay? Don't go chasing waterfalls. Stick to the rivers and the streams that you're used to, okay? Why do you seek the approval of other people when you have the approval of God Almighty with you? How do you know? If you're offended by, this, by everything else and you're not sticking to the presence of God in your life, you'll become offended. You'll be denigrated by what they say when God, the cosmic deity of all creation, is saying to you, I love you, and you go, I'm fine. What can you do to me? Not at a retreat, not at a hike, not at a baptism. Not when you're doing good. Not when you're doing bad. When? When the gospel is the only thing left. Uh, In his book, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, which if you haven't read, go pick it up. It's a fantastic book. John Bunyan gives this example of a man named Christian who receives the gospel from the word. A news is given to him. He has to leave his home country and go on an epic journey. And he goes on this epic journey, and all along the way, he's, he's facing so many hardships. He gets stuck in a, in a swamp, and he starts sinking, and he cries out. He cries something akin to Abba Father, which Romans tells us. And there's somebody who pulls him out of the bog and sets him on dry land, and he goes, who are you? He goes, I'm helper. And he goes, who? He goes, did nobody tell you about me? I'm helper. I'm the helper, meaning I'm the spirit. I'm the Holy Spirit. Call upon me, and I'm there. And he pulls him out, and he goes, I call upon you anywhere I'm at in any trouble and you'll be there to help me? Yes. Well, this is wild. This is incredible. And then Christian comes along other people. He comes upon these multitude of other friends. And as he's interacting with them, each one of them along the way helps him progress to the celestial city, to the kingdom of God, to heaven. And Christian makes these friends of of helpful, of faithful And they encourage him. They speak words into him. They're edified with each other, and they both change. Tempted people come. Worldly wise man comes around and says, hey, if you keep going to Celestial City, you're not going to make as much money. You're not going to have a family. Your family's back into the town that you came from. Go back to them. That's a good thing. If you keep going to the kingdom, you're not going to have money. You're going to have to give it up. You, You may die. And along the way, Christian is tempted to go off the path that's straight and narrow. And each time he receives a word of encouragement from a friend that says, keep going, I'm with you. Keep going, I'm with you. Church, when you feel he can't transform anymore, God is there saying, keep going, I'm with you. You know what that does to you and I? Um, No one ever asked me to go on a marathon with them, okay? Just don't do it. If I was to do one, I would need a whole lot of people around me to encourage me. Get off the couch. Let's go running. 
Let's go 1K. Let's go 2K. We're in this together. The presence of God helps you transform. Uh, in my world, I have a bunch of weird interactions. I get placed in some weird situations with some people that are like high and exalted, and I am nobody. Uh, I found myself uh, in the apartment of a CEO uh, of a restaurant chain. And I was talking with him, we were hanging out, um, and he was speaking with me, and he was saying, hey, I, you know, you're, you're a pastor, you're a Christian. I said, yeah, yeah, I am. He goes, well, you know, this, this whole Christian faith thing in China is really, really wild to me. I said, oh, why is that? He goes, well, it makes a lot of sense that, that Christian faith is exploding in China because there's a lot of people over there that need a lot of self-help, and they need basically a crutch to lean on. And I was listening to him, and I wanted to say, like, Okay, do you know how you sound right now? Like, just really quick. Secondly, do you know how backwards that is to the gospel? So he said, so he said hey, hey, pastor, you know, it makes sense to me that, that Christianity has grown in China because it's like a crutch. I get it. I understand. And some people like yourself need a crutch. Like, I hear you. I hear you. And so, again, I, I get sometimes in, in my life, I get some really weird conversations, and, and the helper struck me at this moment. And I said, actually, it's nothing like a crutch at all. And he said, oh? I said, it's more like a gurney and a toe tag. And he said, oh. And I said, see, a crutch helps me live because I have power. I just need a little support. The gospel says you can't do anything good without me. You need to die to self. And I said, does that preach to you? And he said, no, not at all. And I said, probably because you think you have a lot of good to give, don't you? See, church, we transform when we stop viewing Christ as a self-help guide to prop us up. We grow when we realize, you're everything, I am nothing. I am on a gurney with a toe tag. My life is dead. Your life animates me. I don't need somebody to come along and give me just a, a pep talk. I need somebody to come along and reanimate that, my dead corpse. That's what we need. Do you believe that? Or do you believe Jesus is a guy that you call upon when you're having a really tough week at work? Or you need some more money? Or you need a spouse? Yeah, sure, then I'll pray. I'll pray to God that I need help then. Or do you wake up every single moment of every single day and saying, left to my own devices, my life would be utter ruin. Left to him, oh, life is good. God's promised presence is delivered, and it's the joy of his people. And here's where I'm going to leave you with. One of my favorite movies of all time is Last of the Mohicans. If I've used this before, I apologize. In The Last of the Mohicans, the main character has a lover, and they're being chased by a, a warring tribe. And they go hide underneath a waterfall. And he knows there's no other way out of it. The warring tribe is going to take over, and he looks at his beloved, and he says to her, I will find you. And he jumps out of the waterfall. He goes down a river. He goes down a waterfall. He gets almost crashed. He gets his head almost cracked open. And she gets captured and she's taken by the warring party. Nothing stops him from finding her. No mountain, no warring tribe, no enemy. Nothing stands in his way. And he just goes straight through everybody to get to his beloved. And when he gets to his beloved, when he saves her, she leaves the life she had behind as a British citizen as an officer's daughter, where she had everything in the world going for her. She had clout, she had position, she had title, she had money, she had rank, she had it all. And she left it all to be with her beloved. Why? 
because this man risked life and limb and was willing to die for me. And he promised and he delivered. Church, do you have a God that promised and delivered for you? Why are you going and loving anything else besides him? Why do you seek affirmation in your job, in your spouse, in your identity other than I am a beloved of Christ and that's all I need? When God says, I will be your God and you will be my people, that's his promise to his beloved. I will find you. You know what he did? He did just that, church. He promised it. He delivered it. Let it be your joy. Let it be your joy when you are exposed for the sin that you have. You go, I know I'm a sinner, right? Praise God, I'm forgiven by him. Well, you know, you're a sinner. I, I just said that. I know. You're confirming that the only place that I can be is in the grace of the Father by the Son with help of the Spirit. I get to walk with him at the cool of the day. What can you do to me? Church, find that joyful today, please. Because you know what's going to happen once you find that joyful? Everything else in your life is going to turn joyful, I promise you. I promise you. Instead of looking at your significant other and saying, you must love me, you go, you can be imperfect because I got the love of the Father. You can look at your job and you say, job, you don't have to do, be a pillar for me. You can crumble. Why? Because I got purpose in Christ that transcends everything. When evil wins, you can look and say, I know that the presence of God guarantees to me that one day every tear will be wiped away. I don't have to do it right now. I'm going to try, but you're not going to destroy me. Do you see what the presence of God does? It makes you the most joyful person on planet Earth. And if you're not the most joyful person on planet Earth, can I encourage you with something? Maybe seek the presence of God more, not your presence. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to this week's COTV Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us, you can visit us online at cotv.life. God bless and have a great week.